How are you guys doing this morning? You're looking very, very well. Uh, here's the deal. Here's my special announcements. This young man we've asked to join us on staff again. Again. Turn the same time. Yes, here's the thing. Uh, most of you know that I have felt called, and we've had confirmation on this on all the different levels of the church, that, but set free a little bit to uh, help influence that movement that's going on here. We think that's very important, and we're honored to be able to play a kind of a hub role on this thing. And so we want to influence it theologically and help it to network and, and uh, you know, a number of things. I'm not going away. I'm going to be here. I'm here. But I'm just set up a little bit more free to do that. So we've had more guest speakers. And we're blessed to have a multitude of, of really great guest speakers. And we're going to keep on having that diversity. We think that's very important to hear the, hear the message from a number of different perspectives. But we felt the need to have a, a staple there, a, a regular go-to amidst all that. So it's not just sheer diversity. And so uh, uh, we've just sensed and had that confirmation in a lot of different ways that Seth is supposed to be playing that role. Uh, we also are aware that we are doing service pretty much exactly the same way we did uh, back when we started the church in 1993. And uh, uh, maybe it's time to rethink things and revision things and uh, things like that. And uh, we sense that Seth is good at that sort of thing. And he just brings a lot of great, good leadership gifts to the table that I think we really need. So really looking forward to plugging you in here. You want to say anything? Yeah. Short of a sermon? Yes. Right. Very short of a sermon. Next uh, week. That doesn't Two things I wanted to say. One, um, people consider themselves lucky to get to work here one time. This is a special church, and I recognize it's a real honor to be able to be hired here twice, uh, and that's not lost on me. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to serve in that way. Uh, the second thing is, some of you know, I left staff uh, from Woodland Hills to plant a church called Third Way uh, that meets over in the Midway, and one of the things that we're doing is Third Way and Woodland are going to be talking together and working on what a partnership between the two churches could look like, so we're not going to leave that congregation abandoned. Uh, so you could be praying for that, praying for that congregation and for the way that God could be leading us to work all together. All right, all right. Thanks. In the Bible, when they would uh, set a person aside to do a new ministry, uh, to send them out, they would pray for them, they'd commission them. And so I want to do, take a moment here to do that with Seth. And if you'd like to join me on stage, run up here real quick. Come on, some folks up here. And let's gather around him and those who are staying in the church. If you want to just extend a hand this way to kind of by proxy be laying a hand on him. Um, we just want him to be playing all the roles that, that uh, God wants him to play here. So, Father, we just thank you for uh, Seth and uh, the way you've equipped him and the talents you've given him, the creativity you've given him, and the life experiences that you've given him that have prepared him for this task that uh, we see needs to be done. There's so much here that um, we sense will be improved by his being here. And so we just pray a tremendous blessing on him, uh, anoint him, let everything he does just have that the aroma of the kingdom on it, uh, give him a creativity and ingenuity, a wisdom and a stamina that goes beyond his natural abilities. Um, and bless his family in this transition and bless Third Way in this transition and give us wisdom about that. We just submit him and all that, uh, his gifts and all that he brings to you and ask that you just anoint him in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Bless you, man. Excellente. Well, I always refer to this as uh, the poor man's weekend. Here we are. All of our rich friends are up at the cabin. You know, but we'll celebrate down here in poverty. We are blessed. Um, actually, actually, I'm surprised. Usually the attendance is, is a lot lower than this. This is, looks like a pretty good crowd. So uh, this just means we've lost all of our rich people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right. All right. I appreciate this team and the worship they brought. Man, wasn't that excellent? 
that's uh, uh, worked me up a little sweat in that whole thing. That's, that's a sign of a good service. So we are at the end of this little mini-series we're doing on uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And um, we, uh, in the first week, just looked at Genesis 1 and made the case that there's nothing in Genesis 1 that is in, it has any conflict with science. Whatever you view that is, there shouldn't be a conflict between science and what Genesis 1 is about because you're comparing apples and oranges. And then last week, we looked at what it means to be made in the image of God. We put that in the ancient Near Eastern context, which is the, the cultural milieu of the ancient Israelites, and showed there that, that what it means to be in the image of God, Imago Dei, as it says in Latin, uh, is to uh, be an animated statue of the living God, a representation of the living God, to display the key attributes of the living God, which is, of course, primarily his, about his love. Um, and it means to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. We are created to be kings and queens, uh, uh, rulers on this earth under the rulership of, our, of the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. If you weren't here for those two messages or, or for either of them, uh, come, I, I encourage you to get them and, uh, and listen to them. Uh, you might find it enlightening. Now what I want to do this morning is uh, uh, look at another aspect of what it means to be in the image of God. And it's, it's an aspect that doesn't get much attention. In fact, some of what I'm saying here, I'm quite sure will be new to most of us. Uh, to inch my way into the point I want to make, I'll start by admitting this. As a little boy, I lived in this fantasy world, which I don't think is all that untypical. I was a strange, eccentric kid for sure, but in this respect, I think I was rather normal, at least for little boys. I lived in this fantasy world where I was a superhero. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Uh, I, and I lived in it. I, I, I would role-play this. Uh, I fantasize about this all the time. I wanted to be Superboy. In fact, for a time I thought I was Superboy. And I was Superboy that would come and rescue uh, the pretty girls from the bad guys who broke into our school for whatever reasons. I don't know why they'd break into a school, but they would break in and I would uh, I'd beat them up. Yes, I'd just beat them up single-handedly. And the girls would all be, whoa, check out Superboy. And uh, I, I could even do it uh, uh, singing Georgie Girl. Uh, listening to Georgie Girl. I would get goosebumps listening to, hey there, Georgie Girl. And I'm beating up the guys. There's another Georgie deep inside. Because I could do it so effortlessly. <laughs> Bring it all the love you hide. And oh, what a change will be. The world will see. Uh, boom, boom. New Georgie Girl. And the girls are like, oh, <laughs> superhero, a legend in my own mind. It was just, I even, I for a period of time wore a Superman costume under my clothes uh, to school. Catholic school, we had these uniforms. But I had a Superman outfit underneath, uh, just in case the bad guys actually came. So I could just quickly uh, relieve my false identity. Although I didn't have any glasses, so I don't know what I was thinking. I, 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 they did, everyone knew it would be me. But I wanted to know it was me. That was the point. Never mind. But, uh, yeah, so I, I, I didn't have an actual costume, but I, I, I made a t-shirt and I colored it red with crayon and put an S in the, in the middle, that was good enough, and I, I got an old sheet and I ripped it up and made a cape out of it and uh, um, uh, colored it red with crayon. And by the way, if you ever do that, be careful when you're going number two, because the cape can get in the way, I found out. It's just, don't forget you have a cape on. But that was my secret identity. I only let one person in the school know that I had this costume on. Uh, it was a girl that I thought I was going to marry in second grade because I pushed her down the playground and saw her underwear, and somehow I thought that meant I had to marry her. Uh, and so the whole year, I thought I was going to marry her. But I, I, I did unbutton my top two buttons and showed her the shirt. No need to fear. Superboy is here. So there you go. 
Maybe that was a little eccentric. <laughs> I don't know. So he, the question I want to ask is this. Okay, so there's, in this fantasy world that I lived in, uh, all sorts of aggression. Um, and I see that in, in my grandkids and other, my little boy, uh, he, he comes in. Uh, and lately, as soon as he sees me, he goes like this. And I'm not sure what super, I think he's Spider-Man or something, but he's like this. And, and, and he wants to fight. And so we come up and we kind of pretend fighting. And, and there's just this natural aggression. And you give him some cars, the first thing he does is he goes, you know, he's got to crash the cars. Um, now, Jesus says, don't be violent. Abstain from violence, love your enemies, turn the other cheek and all that. So does this mean that I was evil as a little boy? <laughs> was that altogether evil? Um, or what my grandson is doing, is that evil? And see, I, I want to suggest to you that it's not. Maybe I was a little narcissistic, uh, but it wasn't altogether evil. I want to suggest that part of that, that aggression there is an inbuilt thing. Um, and it's not just guys who have it. I know that, that little girls have it too. It's just with little girls, it's, it's rather unpredictable. Uh, with little boys, you know that they're going to do it on a regular basis. With little girls, you don't know when it's going to pop out. So you have to be, you know, more just, boom. But there is aggression there. And I want to suggest to you it's not altogether evil. Here's the thing. And we're entitling this message, uh, On Guard. Uh, when the swordsmen go, On Guard. Because we'll see here in a moment that we have to be on guard. All right. So let's consider Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God, right? He is the perfect animated statue of the living God. He perfectly puts on display the character of God. He per- perfectly puts on display what it is to rule under the rulership of God. He is the living, uh, walking, talking incarnation of the kingdom of God. And yet, there were times where he got aggressive. It was not like some of these movies you see, where Jesus walks around, this is kind of, he's soft-spoken, he's got this kind of glassy-eyed look, he looks like a reefer-toking hippie from the 60s who's just saying, hey, let's all chill and love one another, you know, and, and he just kind of looks stoned and walks around, I guess. No, 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 that's not even close. Now, Jesus was completely, nothing, nothing but compassion, and totally approachable and gentle with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the broken, all those folks. He never had an angry word towards them. But when he was talking to religious muckety-mucks who were getting off on their muckety-muckness and oppressing people, uh, he got huge sometimes. He got big. Here's a, here's a, here's a case in point. Uh, John, chapter 2. This doesn't look like some glassy-eyed reefer token hippie. Look at this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made himself a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. So he drove all the animals from the temple courts. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He was ticked. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, there are some people who try to say, look, at, they, they, they cite this as proof that Jesus actually got violent. He, he engaged in violence against people and animals. And if Jesus had actually engaged in violence against people, and maybe even against animals, everyone around him, including his disciples, would have said, you hypocrite, because you're going around teaching not to do that kind of thing. So it's a love our enemies, turn the other cheek, never retaliate, never engage in violence, blah, blah, blah. And now you go and do this. So he would have been a hypocrite. Uh, but more fundamentally, the text doesn't say that he engaged in violence against anybody. It says he made a whip. 
Um, but it doesn't even say that he used it on the animals, let alone on people. It, like, throughout, throughout history, and also all cultures, a whip has been one of the ways that you control the flow of animals. You crack the whip, it startles them, and you get them to run in a certain direction. And Jesus here, he's protesting this, uh, this religious establishment that is desecrating the temple and exploiting people. And so this is sort of street theater here. It's a protest. He's also fulfilling some prophecies and stuff like that. But he cracks the whip because he wants to cause a stampede of animals. And then he overturns the tables and all of that. It is aggressive, but it's not violent. He's not engaging in violence here. But it is aggressive. This isn't the work of some kind of glassy-eyed, reefer-toking hippie in the 60s. He is, he's, 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 getting, he's roaring here uh, because he's angry at how the house of God is being treated. Which shows us, since Jesus is the perfect image of God, being aggressive for the right reasons and being in the image of God are not incompatible. And then on top of that, throughout his ministry, Jesus, he confronts people who are demonized. And then he rebukes the demon and casts it out. And that word rebuke, phanao in, in Greek, it means to muzzle, um, to silence, to muzzle, and even sometimes to choke. And so it's an aggressive word. When Jesus comes upon a demonized person, he basically says to the demon, silence, get out. Uh, and it's, it's aggression. Not only that, but... If you understand Jesus' life in its first century apocalyptic context, if you understand Jesus' life within what we call the warfare worldview, it becomes clear that everything about his life was an aggressive act of war, not against people, but against principalities and powers. So we read this all over the place in the New Testament, things like what Paul says in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against humans, but it's against uh, the rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, everybody in this, this context, in this period, understands what those terms mean. They refer to different classes of cosmic agents, uh, principalities and powers, um, that God had entrusted aspects of creation and society to. Uh, and these powers are now using their authority at cross-purposes with God, corrupting aspects of creation and aspects of society. So when you understand Jesus' life in the warfare worldview that understands these principalities and powers that are at work in creation and society, it becomes clear that every, every area of his life that was countercultural was itself waging war against the powers that influence that aspect of the culture. So, for example, when, when Jesus rebels against the sexism of his culture by the way that, the countercultural way that he treats women, he's not just being countercultural, he's engaging in warfare against the powers of that day and throughout history that fuel sexism. And when Jesus revolted against the racism of his culture by holding up a Samaritan as a hero and, and praising a Roman centurion and things like that, he wasn't just being countercultural, against the racism of his culture, he was waging war on the powers that fuel racism in that culture and throughout history, including ours. And so also with every aspect of his life, his revolt against violence, his revolt against greed, his revolt against poverty, his revolt against sickness and disease, and all these things he's not just revolting against the physical thing going on, he's revolting against the powers that fuel those things. And so, in fact, this is why Jesus got killed. This is why he was crucified. He lived an aggressive life of spiritual warfare, never against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, which tells us that being in the image of God is not incompatible with having this aggression. In fact, if you're going to manifest the character of God, you're going to have to be aggressively going against everything that contradicts the character of God. Now, if... Um, we look at Genesis 1 and 2 from that perspective, 
from the perspective of what we know to be true about the image in Jesus Christ, we're going to find here indications in those chapters that suggest that this, what I might call a warrior instinct, this aggressive warrior instinct, was inbuilt in us from the very start. That was part of the plan from the beginning. So what I'm going to do here is this. For the next 10 minutes, I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps. I'm going to give you some detail. We're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew. If you're visiting for the first time, you might as well find out now that this is a really smart congregation. We like to get into it thick and deep and heady. And so uh, prepare to wrestle with some stuff here. I'm going to, in the next 10 minutes, go over five passages that are rather puzzling. Maybe five that you've never noticed before. Um, And I I am uh, going to just kind of explore these five passages you're not going to really know what, where I'm going with this until I'm done. So suspend judgment for, five, for, for, for about 10 minutes, maybe, maybe 11, 12 max. Okay? And, and I, I, believe me, I will have a point, uh, though it won't be clear uh, uh, early on. This is the thing I want to say at the beginning. Uh, this may, may make some people's brain hurt. There may be some brain splatter oh, you know, exploding here and there, so ushers get ready with the mops. Uh, and this is the kind of thing you don't have to agree with me on. This isn't doctrine. I'm just going to give a perspective that I think makes sense out of all the data I'm going to be examining here. If it, if, if it fits, fine, wear it. If not, find something better. Uh, but but uh, keep an open mind as we go through this, all right? Five passages. Number one. In Genesis 2, we read this. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, the word take care of there is samar. And um, it, it literally means to, to guard something. Uh, and usually when it's applied to gardening, it does mean something like take care of the garden or, or till the garden, because what you want to protect or guard the garden from are weeds. But here's the thing. In light of what happens in the next chapter with that crafty, nasty serpent... I suggest to you that maybe what Adam was supposed to guard the garden from was a little bit more sinister than weeds. In fact, according to the Genesis narrative, unpleasant plants like weeds and thorns and stuff don't come about till after the fall. And this is before the fall. So there wouldn't be any weeds to guard from. So I submit to you that this, this sense of guard the garden has a, uh, a more serious quality than just till the ground. Okay, secondly, here's where the... Brains may start to hurt, the splatter may flow. It says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, the man and woman, and took, uh, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now the word there is kabas. Everybody say kabas. Okay, I told you you're going to learn some Hebrew here. Kabas. And uh, this word is usually applied, uh, it's the word that is used when one nation conquers another, when you subdue it. Or when you take back a territory, you kibas. When there's something that resists you and you have victory over it, it's kibas. It's an aggressive term. Which raises this question. The fall hasn't happened yet. So what is there to kibas? What's he supposed to subdue? Just think about that. Something out there seems like it's a little bit ominous. Which leads to the third passage. And now things get really interesting. In the beginning... Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. The, the phrase here is tohu vabohu. Everyone say tohu vabohu. Say it with passion. Tohu vabohu. Yeah, 
yes, tohu vabohu. And now you can really impress your friends. You know, if something goes wrong, you just say, tohu vabohu. And they'll think you have glossolalia or something. So tohu vabohu. Well, here's the thing. Uh, and then it says, and, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Tohom. Everybody say tohom. Okay, these are going to be important words here in a moment. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, uh, tohu, uh, it refers to something formless or chaotic or upheaval. It has that connotation. And bohu refers to emptiness, void, wasteland. Uh, these are, uh, these are, are usually negative terms. And when put together, it has a real pejorative uh, sense or something unnatural here. It's used in Jeremiah 4. When the Lord is looking down on a land that has been ravaged by war, it's come under judgment, and the, the, the buildings are all demolished, and it says here, I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, tohu vabohu. It's not like it was supposed to be. It's been damaged. It's chaotic. It's a wasteland. Tohu vabohu. Which leads to this question. When God said, let there be heavens and the earth, and there was the heavens and the earth. How did it suddenly become tohu vabohu, a wasteland, formless, empty, in this negative state, this unnatural state? Think about it. It's really interesting because in Isaiah 45, we have uh, this author praising God by saying, He who created the heavens, he is God. He did not create it, tohu, but formed it to be inhabited. He didn't create it, tohu. Uh, and you could argue then this, if, if, if God did not create a tohu, well, then how did it become not only tohu, but tohu vavohu? You get my drift. What happened that brought it to this tohu vavohu state of affairs? Just wondering here, out loud. Uh, and then, then we have the Spirit of God. The fourth point is the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, to home. Now, uh, the deep is, as I shared uh, the first week of the series, one of the main ways that ancient and Eastern people uh, spoke about and envisioned uh, hostile forces that were against the earth. They, they were aware that there's conflict in the spiritual realm, that there are forces of destruction, and the way that they represented them was, was as, as this deep, the deep, the, this, this abyss. And there's other ways that they had as, as well, but this was a negative kind of a concept here. Um, and here it says the Spirit of God hovers over the deep, this ominous thing. Um, and it's clear that in Genesis 1, unlike some of the other ancient Eastern creation stories, the deep isn't personified here, uh, whereas it's a, it's a monster in these other stories. But a lot of scholars argue that it still holds something of that ominous quality to it. And the Spirit of God hovers over it to keep it restrained and then prepare it to bring order out of it. But this is, this is what has to be controlled for God to create the order of creation in Genesis 1, as we discussed in the first week. So the Spirit of God is hovering over this deep. And finally, the fifth point, and here's where the brain matter may splatter. You have up to 28 passages. Some of them are disputed. I would argue 20 are for sure, but some argue as much as 28 passages in the Old Testament that are about creation, about the creation of the world, but in which Yahweh has to do battle against forces like Tehom, the deep, and the waters. Uh, you find passages that where he's engaging a battle against cosmic monsters. And this, again, is how ancient people envisioned the principalities and powers. Sea monsters or raging seas or something like that that surround the earth and threaten the earth. And Yahweh has to battle these forces in order to create this present world. And we know that these are creation poems, 
because we can compare them to other creation poems and hymns in the ancient Eastern world, and they use the same kind of concepts. In fact, there's strong parallels between them. In fact, in, in a few cases, it looks like the biblical author was just quoting one of these other stories. Mesopotamian story, Ugaritic, Canaanite. They, they, these were circulating, and some of the uh, stuff we find in, in the Old Testament is, is actually quoting that. What example is this? Psalm 74. Um, the author says, it was you, referring to Yahweh. It was you who split open the sea by your power. A little caveat here. The word sea here is yam. And yam happens to be the name of the Canaanite deity of chaos. The, the, the abyss, the sea. Um, and so his name was yam. And some scholars argue, and I happen to be persuaded by this, that in this case, the proper noun should be actually transliterated as a name. So it was you who split open Yom by your power. These folks know who Yom is. He's a bad guy, the cosmic force. In fact, there's a number of proper nouns in the Old Testament that scholars argue should be translated as the name of particular deities in the environment of the Israelites. But it was you, Yahweh, who split the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. Um, sometimes they envisioned these, the sea monster, this cosmic force of chaos, their way of picturing Satan. And God always has to come down to our level and speak our language and use our concepts. That's why we have this kind of primitive mythology in the Bible. Uh, but it's referring to realities here. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. Which, by the way, shows that we're not talking about a, a, a hippopotamus or a crocodile or a whale, as some have suggested. I have yet to see a many-headed whale. It, it would be pretty bizarre. But this is a mythic creature, their way of envisioning Satan. And in doing this, in crushing the heads of Leviathan, you establish the sun and the moon. This is a creation story. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. Why? Because you pushed back the waters. Uh, these hostile creatures. This is a creation story. You made both summer and winter. And so here we have creation, but there's a battle that takes place prior to creation. Now, the question we need to ask is, how does that text, which is inspired, and these other 28 texts which are inspired, how do they relate to the Genesis 1 text, which is inspired? Because in Genesis 1, we just find that the earth is tohu wabohu, and there's this tohom, the deep. But then God just kind of creates, he just speaks, and there's no battling going on. So how do these two things relate? Now, I want to suggest to you, here, here's one way of thinking about it. Try it on. It makes sense to me of so many things. That the, combining these, these stories... Um, it makes sense. You can now begin to understand why the world became Tohu In other words, these, this battle kind of thing happened after creation, but before God formed this present world as we find it in Genesis 1. It happens between verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, and see, in this case, we can understand how the world became Tohu Wabohu, how it became formless and void, and darkness over the face of the, the deep, the abyss. We can also understand that why we were created with a warrior instinct, as I'll show here in a moment. So here's how I put it together. Think about this. God in the beginning speaks creation into existence. He creates the heavens and the earth. And that would, of course, include the angelic realm, even though they're not mentioned in Genesis 1, which is another indication that we're not dealing with an exhaustive creation account here. Uh, it assumes the existence of angels. God creates the angelic realm. And as he would later do with human beings on the earth, he entrusts the, this angelic realm, each of these divisions of angels, with a, with, with a certain authority over aspects of creation. Now, we know from the New Testament that at some point there was rebellion in the heavenly realm. We're not told much about it. We're not even told much about the human rebellion. But there, we, we know there was a rebellion. The angels fell. They left their first estate, it says in, in the New Testament. And uh, they're headed up by this one who came to be called Satan. 
Uh, he's referred to in the Latin uh, translation of the 4th century, the Vulgate, as, as Lucifer. And so that became sort of his proper name. He was Lucifer as when he's created good, but now, with this rebellion, he becomes Satan. He becomes the one that Jesus says comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. He becomes the destroyer, it says in, in Revelation 9. And then these angels at this point, in this rebellion, they become the principalities and powers and rulers uh, and, and authorities in dark places and, and all that. And they're now going to use their authority at cross purposes with God. Because when God gives authority, he really gives it. No, no take backs. Uh, if you have authority to be a parent and you start smoking crack cocaine, you're still going to be a parent, unfortunately, for the kid. You see, it, it, it's, uh, we, we use our authority for, for good or worse. So these angelic beings rebel, but they still have this authority. So now they start exercising their authority at cross purposes with God. And they are destroyers. Uh, they, are, they come to kill, steal, and destroy. So they work to reduce the good creation to a state of tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. And see, this then explains, among other things, if, if these angels have been corrupt, long before human beings are ever created, if there are principalities and powers that are corrupting nature, we can begin to understand why, going back to the pre-Cambrian explosion 550 million years ago, we start to find predatorial life. Um, and and um, uh, this violence that just permeates all of creation, all of nature, up way before human beings ever come around. In fact, try this on. Uh, if you're one who believes that there's something, some truth in evolution, as I've shared, I do, that that's a means by which God creates, the way I view it is this, that throughout the whole creation process, which is bloody, and it's nasty, and it's got oh, terrible stuff in it, and nature produces some vile, vile things. Really, some of those parasites out there are just demonic. Oh, I mean, this is why Darwin lost his faith. He discovered some of these... He says, if there's an intelligence in nature, it must be evil. Because some of these things are just designed... They know how to eat. Oh, I can't go into it. I don't have time. Read, read this book called Dark Nature. Uh, don't, in fact, do not read the book called Dark Nature. <laughs> it will... It, all this stuff about how beautiful nature is. It is beautiful. It's got some beautiful stuff. But man, some of it is nasty. Nasty, nasty stuff. And it does not reflect the, the benevolent character of God. And you have that way before human beings ever come across. Evolution is a bloody, nasty mess. Uh, well, I see, the way I see it is, is that it reflects God creates, and it's good, but the powers corrupt. But then God always brings good out of evil, and he always outsmarts the enemy, so he manages to use the corruption to inch forward to his goal. And his ultimate goal is to create human beings in his image. And so there's this shimmy process that leads to the creation. It just shows that God can achieve any means, or any end by any means. He uses the evil for the good. He brings good out of it. And there finally comes a time where it's appropriate to create human beings. Whatever decided what time it was, God then created human beings. Breathed a unique, special breath of life into them. We became living souls. And then he places us in Eden. Now, Eden in Genesis 2, is a particular place. And as I shared last week, it, it's, it's spoken of as a temple, God's temple here on earth. It's a unique kind of place where God, God will be present through his animated statues and his image bearers and those who carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. So he places us in Eden. And then he says, guard the garden. From what? I submit to you, from those forces that are out there. That are corrupting nature. Your job is to guard this. And then he goes further and says, and I want you to subdue it. Not only passively guard it, but aggressively subdue it. What do you subdue? Everything that's not consistent with the character of God. 
And so I, I, the way I see it is Eden was, was, was meant to be sort of a beachhead, a military beachhead, by which God planned on launching his sort of final, final assault on these principalities and powers who have been trying to reduce the world to a tohu wabohu state from time immemorial, and he wants to work with us to take back what belongs to God, which is ultimately all the earth. So he says, be fruitful and multiply over all the earth. Go outside of Eden and subdue it and take it back for him. Here it's important to remember that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the kind of genre they are, as I shared um, two weeks ago, uh, they're ancient Eastern poems. So they're not primarily about what happened once upon a time. They're talking about the God who is God now, the work that God does now, the, the work that we're called to now. And so God, it's not just that God brought order out of chaos, but he's always bringing order out of chaos. He's always constraining the Tohom, the deep. He's always having victory over that. He's always bringing good out of evil. He's doing this to, the, to this day. And God now wants human beings to partner with him in carrying out this task. And so he, he, he has been at battle with, these, with all that is inconsistent with his character for millions of years. So he creates us in his image. And guess what? We have a warrior instinct that reflects our warrior God. It's never to be directed against flesh and blood, but it's a warrior instinct. We're created with an aggression, a godly aggression, because God can be aggressive. When there's things that need confronting, God confronts them, and we're a people made in his image. It means, folks, that we are created from the beginning... To do what Jesus did in his life. To manifest the character of God. To extend the rule of God. Subdue all that's, that's against it. And to aggressively confront all that is out of line with the will of God. Everything that's inconsistent with that character. From the very beginning, we were created for that. In fact, whether you accept my model of putting things together or not, doesn't matter. Lock this in. You are created to be a superboy and a supergirl. That's not a bad thing. You're created to be a king and a queen. You're created to be a military hero. You're created to be a subduer. You're created to be a, a, an on-guard warrior. And our job is to carry that out with aggression and with passion and to do it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Take back all that belongs to God and what belongs to God is ultimately everything. Which means we've got to sweep this place of everything that's inconsistent with that. Amen. We've got to kick some devil butt. <laughs> Bam! That kind of aggression is a good thing. That kind of aggression. Now, because we're dealing with ancient Eastern poems, I think it's impossible and entirely unnecessary to try to figure out exactly what is figurative and what's literal. Um, you know, does the snake really talk? Don't worry about that. The portraits convey powerfully the truth of what it means to be made in the image of God and the job that we are called to do and the way that we're to mirror God's character and the fact that that involves a certain amount of, of, of aggression sometimes. So there's a number of implications this has for us. I think it's, I, I think it's mind-boggling. Um, but consider this. Here's, here's one implication. Parents, listen up. It means that not all aggression is bad. And I'm talking to Minnesotans here. <laughs> Minnesotans, listen up! <laughs> not all aggression is bad. Sometimes you've got to say it straight. Speak the truth in love. Oof, you know, Say it straight. Um, Minnesota nice doesn't always apply. Some aggression is necessary and good. Um, which means then that this, that we shouldn't try to squash all aggression out of our kids. I, I've, I've known some folks who really have woken up to how central uh, Jesus' revelation of a nonviolent God is and the call to be nonviolent and to turn the other cheek and to never retaliate and to never fight against flesh and blood. I, I, and, and, and it's beautiful that they get that. But then what happens is that they think that all aggression is, is, is antichrist, so they try to squish it out of little Johnny. Um, 
And uh, that's a very hard thing to squish. Uh, little boys are going to, you can take their cars away because they crash them, but they'll just do the same thing with rocks. And you can take their laser guns away, but they're just going to make a laser out of the stick on the ground. You know, it, it's, it, they're going to find a way. It's, it's called testosterone. <laughs> uh, and and uh, is, is testosterone of the devil? I've met some women who think so, but I don't think so. Hope not. Um, here's the thing. We don't want to squash the aggression. We want to affirm it that that's a, that that's a, 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 of God. Now, the way it gets directed is not always good. Not usually good in this, in this fallen world. But it's our job as parents and grandparents um, to, to channel that in the right way. Um, find ways of... And this means that we need to be teaching... Now, get this. And I know to some of you... I, I, I may sound flaky. Uh, <laughs> censor, censor, censor. Um, like that's something new. But he, here's the thing. It, I, I really believe we need to be teaching our kids about spiritual warfare starting at a very early age. In age-appropriate ways. Not scaring the kajibers out of them. But just creating an awareness. It's like, it's like this. If you were living over in northern Iraq right now, would you hesitate to tell your kids that there's a war going on? I don't think so. Because uh, they need to know that. So also, there is a war going on all around us. And our kids need to know about this because it influences things. And so I, I would encourage you to be creative like this. Um, uh, if kids are going to be playing kind of war games, shoot them up Charlie games, or whatever they call them nowadays, uh, start teaching role-playing, where they understand, uh, you're all pretending here, and uh, when you're fighting one another, you're not shooting a person, you're shooting, oh, the power that is behind all injustice, and stealing, and lying, and cheating, and lust, and all the other things. Uh, you're shooting at principalities and powers. You're role-playing spiritual warfare. Or with video games. There's one couple here at, at Woodland Hills who was having tremendous trouble with their 11-year-old because he wanted to play these real violent video games. And some of those video games, I've learned, are unthinkably violent um, and, and sadistic. And yeah. So he was wanting to play these things, and they were saying no to any kind of violence. You can only do these games where you build things, which he found to be totally boring. And this was coming to a real nasty place. So they're wondering about this. Are they being too harsh? And I suggested this. Um, well, why not try to meet in the middle? And the middle would be this. Uh, you know, just think about this as a possibility. Don't play video games where, where you're assassinating human beings or murdering human beings like some of these things do. Re, re, redoing the JFK assassination. If there's human-on-human human violence, you can't do those kind of videos. But there's some real cool alien videos out there and monster videos and zombie videos. And then start teaching your boy about how when you're shooting at those things, envision that as shooting against the power that is behind all poverty and all dehumanizing things and the power that's behind uh, wars and violence. And you're tearing down. And and when you're shooting at them, that's your prayers and that's your life and that's the character of God that you're putting on display. You are vanquishing them as you're playing this video game. And now the video game becomes a rehearsal for spiritual warfare. Trying to kibosh the whole thing isn't going to work, and I don't know if it should work, because you want to affirm the appropriate use of that kind of aggression. Not all aggression is bad. But all violence is, all flesh-on-flesh violence, which leads to this next point, and that is, um, we need to understand that if we're not fighting the powers, we're being played by the powers. All violence is a result of our warrior instinct getting misdirected. Uh, our, Our job is to wage war on the powers precisely by never letting another human being become our enemy. Or at least they may consider us enemies, but we don't consider them that. Uh, We wage war on the powers by refusing not to love somebody. Now, if we're not doing that, then we will be losing to the powers. We'll be getting played by the powers. 
And the way they do that is they would deceive us into thinking that they're not the enemy, the other person's the enemy. So we, the, 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 the instinct we have to shoot at the demonic becomes an instinct to shoot at a person whom we think is demonic. And all violence is a result of that. Insofar as we're living in the, the, the kingdom life that Jesus calls us to, we are going to be, just as he was, waging war on the powers. Because when you refuse to hate another human being, you are waging war on the powers. And when you re- refuse uh, to uh, harbor anger and, and grudges, you're waging war on the powers. When you forgive quickly, you're waging war on the powers. When you bless your enemy, you're waging war on the powers. When you refuse to engage in violence, you're waging war on the powers. When you refuse to retaliate, you're waging war on the powers. And then when you choose to side with people who are the object of racism, you're waging war on the powers. And when you side with those who are marginalized and hungry and homeless, you're waging war on the powers because you're manifesting the kingdom of God and it necessarily conflicts with the powers that are trying to influence things in in a different direction. That is spiritual warfare. And you can't manifest the character of God without doing that. Amen. But if we're not doing that, if we're not doing that, we will be played by the powers. And now the aggression, the aggression of love, because all kingdom aggression is aggression of love for flesh and blood. That aggression of love will become an aggression of hatred towards flesh and blood. And so instead of not struggling against flesh and blood, but raging war on the powers, we'll be fighting flesh and blood because we're getting played by the powers. As kingdom people, we've got to commit to never getting played. I mean, uh, seriously. Um, We've been getting played for too long. The thing is here, the good news is Jesus Christ has liberated from those powers. He's liberated us from those powers. He has freed us from that. We are placed in Christ Jesus, and Jesus is seated far above all principalities and powers, and rulers and dominions, far above Satan. We're not under them, we're over them. And so we've got to stand in the victory that we have in Christ. And, uh, and that means we're empowered to manifest the, the character of God once again, and to take back... For God, what belongs to God. We are empowered to live in freedom. We are empowered to live in love. We are empowered to raise the right kind, right kind of war. But we're not getting, if we're not doing that, we're getting played by the powers. You see that even in Genesis, in Genesis 4. The minute Adam and Eve stop, they don't guard the garden like they're supposed to, and they don't subdue what they're supposed to subdue. And the minute that, that happens, they start to get played. Adam turns aggressively against Eve and blames her for, for, for what happened to him. And then the next chapter you have Cain. Killing Abel. They're getting played by the powers. And then God has to protect Cain from all the other people because they want to kill him now. Genesis 4. And if you ask the question, where did all those people come from? Because Cain was supposed to be the, the, the second born. Well, that just shows you that we're not dealing with scientific stuff here in Genesis 1 through 3. There's a lot of other stuff going on that it's not telling us about. Okay, it's a different sermon. So, Cain kills Abel. Then the next chapter, we've got this guy named Lamech who avenges sevenfold. Anyone who wrongs him, he retaliates seven times worse. And then by the time we get to Genesis 6, it says that the earth was filled with violence. All of humanity was getting played by the powers. So the humanity that God wanted to represent his character now is taking on the character of the enemy. Adam is influenced by the, the, the accuser of the brethren. That's how, what Satan's called. And he becomes an accuser. And we're influenced by the destroyer. We become destructive. And so the character that was supposed to manifest, the, the people who were supposed to manifest the character of God manifest the character of the enemy. And the ones who were supposed to rule the earth become ruled by the earth and ruled by the powers. And the ones who were supposed to subdue Tohu Wabohu now get subdued by Tohu Wabohu. That's what the flood is. The flood is simply God stopping, restraining Tohom. He's no longer, he, he, he withdraws, and now what you have is the undoing of creation. 
And the, the, the creation goes back to a state of tohu avohu. That's what the whole, whole flood story is, is getting at. We are a people, we've got to know, who've been freed from that. We've been freed from the powers, freed from condemnation, freed from slavery, freed from getting played, freed from the stupidity of be, being played. We've been, we, we're a people who have been freed to live in the love of God and the power of God, the might of God and the victory of God. We are a people who have been created for and redeemed to be warriors, kings and queens, roar, people who roar in the face of evil and injustice and oppression and all that's wrong with humanity played by the powers and to do that folks here's the thing i'll close with this we've got to remain aware of the powers and see we're conditioned in our culture to have a consciousness that never thinks about that and so we need to adjust our brains and that's not easy to do but be aware when you are in conflict with another person it's never just you and the other person it's not there's a spiritual dimension to it and don't go blaming the devil for all your conflict. We are good enough at getting ourselves in conflict. But there is a devil and principalities and powers who fuel that. And so when you're in conflict, it's always appropriate to pray a prayer. To remember that this person is not your enemy. The enemy is trying to make him your enemy. But you think he's an enemy. Don't be deceived. No, be, be, keep a kingdom mindset. And if it's possible, if that person's a kingdom person, as you're in conflict here, take a break and pray. Join together and pray against the powers that are trying to... Remind yourself, you guys are not the enemy. You have the conflict, but you're going to work it out. And, and the, your commitment to not make each other the enemy is itself declaring war on the right enemy. Have a kingdom mindset. And couples, finally, couples, married couples. Once in a while, in a marriage, you may have found out if you've been married for more than eight minutes. <laughs> Things get funky once in a while, don't they? They just get funky. You ever have this? It is, one morning you get up and say, good morning. And the response is, what? How could you say that? And it goes downhill from there. Um, and it's, it's uh, it really, it, you get in a fog. Where you, everything you say, everything you say is, is misunderstood. It's misinterpreted. It's twisted. It becomes offensive. Worst thing ever said in the universe. In the universe. It's, and and it's, you, just, you can't talk to each other. You're completely missing each other. And the more you try to talk it through, the worse it gets. Any amens out there? <laughs> you know that is. Well, you know, okay, look at You can blame that on fatigue, not having a good night's sleep, hormones, whatever. There's a lot of factors. Um, and that's all true. But know that there's a spiritual dimension of this. And I tell you, I, we, we practice this in, in my family. Um, if you can just take a break from the insanity for a moment and just join together and pray. Now, that's hard because when you're mad at a person, you don't want to pray with them. <laughs> They don't deserve your prayer. But, but as a kingdom person who submitted, you take, take a break, time out. Can we just stop and pray a prayer? And just say, and remind yourselves, you are not each other's enemy. There is a force that's trying to make you think you're each other's enemy. But you're not going to be played by this enemy because you are no fool. You are in Christ above the principalities and powers. So you're going to unite together and declare war on that enemy. And I'm telling you, yes, I'm telling you, that blows the smoke out of the room. It really does. It's like, it's like turning on a major fan when someone's been smoking a cigar and it just blows it out the window. And it doesn't solve all your problems. You still got issues to work through. Don't worry about that. They'll always be there. Uh, but, but now you can work through them because it's not getting polluted by this. Uh, in marriage, in, in race relations, there's always powers that we've been feeding for centuries that, 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 that fog things up. And what needs to happen is for us to just agree, commit to never demonizing the other person. Always believe the best. Love believes the best. Love hopes all things, believes all things, trusts all things. We, we unite on that and declare war against the real enemy. Folks, we are created for war. 
Uh, when, when that warrior instinct gets misdirected towards people, it is the ugliest thing in the world. But when it gets rightly uh, uh, directed towards the principalities and powers that fuel all that's wrong in society and creation, it's something beautiful. Affirm it in yourselves, affirm it in your kids, affirm it in your neighbor, and let's get aggressive and kick some devil behind. What do you say? Let's kick some devil behind. All right, would you stand up? Yes. See, there's a, there's a place for being redneck. Huh? There's a golly element there. Come on, I said, let's kick some devil butt. All right, all right. Hallelujah. Uh, I, as I close here, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you are here this morning and have any need whatsoever uh, that could use prayer, please come up here and pray with these folks. Uh, and uh, if, if you want to find out about how to become a follower of Jesus, what that means, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to get you started on that. As we leave here, leave here I'm just going to give us this little benediction. Can we do it as a people who commit to, de- to declaring war on war? Uh, the flesh and blood war. Declare war on violence. Flesh and blood violence. Declare war on injustice and the powers that fuel it. War on sexism and the powers that fuel it. War on racism and the powers that fuel it. War on everything in this world that is not consistent with the character of God and all the powers that fuel that. And can we commit to be a people who stay awake and never get played? In Jesus' name and all God's warriors said. Amen. All right, go kick some devil butt. <laughs>